One of the most common forms of T-cell lymphoma is CTCL, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. CTCL can also involve the blood, lymph nodes, and other internal organs. Cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is a rare and challenging cancer that can have a big impact on a patient's life. To give hope to patients and to give insight to physicians on how to better combat this disease, we are chatting today with one of the leading experts on the topic, Dr. Michael Girardi. Dr. Girardi has made immense contributions throughout his career as a dermatologist to push our, our understanding of cutaneous lymphoma and advance our approach to how we clinically treat patients with this severe disease. He has published over 150 scientific manuscripts, clinical reports, and chapters, including one in, on the genetic basis of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, CTCL. Dr. Girardi seems to wear many hats. He is the co-director of the Yale Cutaneous Lymphoma Group, director of the photophoresis unit, and the director of the phototherapy unit at Yale. On top of all of that, Dr. Girardi is a professor, vice chair, and residency director for the Department of Dermatology at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Girardi, welcome. I'm looking forward to leaning, learning from you about your insights of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma today. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. So let's begin with something simple. What is cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and how is it different than mycosis fungoides? So cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is kind of the catch-all umbrella term for um, any T-cell lymphoma that can involve the skin. And mycosis fungoides is really the subtype that is the most common form of CTCL. Okay. Are there comorbidities or risk factors involved with developing CTCL? So probably the biggest risk factor to the development of mycosis fungoides and the other forms of CTCL is age. By far, uh, the incidence uh, goes up with age and it's most commonly going to come into the fifth, sixth, into the seventh decade of life. That said, I have uh, many pediatric patients and younger patients who do develop this disease, so it's certainly not an absolute. There um, are certainly genetic predispositions to all types of uh, lymphoma and leukemia, including T-cell-derived ones. So, you know, it's probably a combination of genetic factors, environmental factors that we haven't completely uh, figured uh, all out, but certainly aging is probably the biggest factor. Do we know why age? Is that because of our telomere shortening or just as we age, our risk of cancer increases? Yeah. So um, I think some of that is being worked out quite nicely. There's some pretty good evidence that um, the way T cells behave, the way they're uh, constantly stimulated to proliferate, make more of themselves, and then kind of try to cycle down after they've encountered antigen and, and protect against, uh, you know, uh, too many of them, an overambitious uh, immune response, and how they're also programmed to stay in the body in forms of memory T cells. Um, I think that's a big factor. So they can age that way. There'll be some uh, evidence of telomere shortening uh, over a lifespan of a T cell. You know, after you get to a point where you lose your telomeres, you, you could... Um, 
in particular, if you've acquired other mutations that are not completely understood, but um, there's some evidence that there's UV, ultraviolet light acquired mutations, and some evidence that there could be chemically acquired mutations. Um, but an aging T cell might spontaneously develop some other mutations. So that might affect survival. There may be effects of constant antigen stimulation. There may be effects of telogen uh, short, uh, Tel uh, telomere shortening, and then we get to a point where we might have a chromosomal uh, instability uh, crisis, and that causes shuffling of genes. And mm. in particular, for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, we see a lot of chromosomal um, shuffling of genes, so that there's this uh, gene amplification or gene deletion effect, um, really more common than, than most other cancers. And do we think that epigenetics has some role in this or we don't have an understanding of that at this point? Yeah, absolutely. Um, certainly a combination of point mutations, a combination of gene amplification and deletions, and a combination of uh, epigenetic uh, changes, uh, which aren't directly damaging to the DNA, but certainly uh, turning on and off of uh, certain genes. That really plays a role in, in every cancer. So what is the role of lymphocytes on our skin versus in circulation? You know, when you talk about lymphocytes, people think, oh, it's in your bloodstream. They never think like, oh, you actually have lymphocytes that are living on your skin. Absolutely. Um, T cells and B cells are both lymphocytes and, and B cells uh, largely are, are not going to be coming too often into the skin, but T cells they're really a big part of our cell-mediated immunity. They will home to uh, many organs throughout the body, including the skin. And they have a much needed reason to home to the skin. I mean, it's at a critical juncture with the environment and protection against invading pathogens, uh, therefore is, is so critical uh, to protecting the, the host organism. So T cells uh, will develop in the thymus inside the body. They'll circulate in the blood and through lymph nodes. But after they've encountered antigen, you know, what they're specific for, whether that's part of a pathogen uh, or not, or a toxin, they may um, take up residence in tissues. And so throughout your lifespan, you accumulate T cells in your skin and you accumulate it in your intestine and other organs as well. And to form this uh, protective immune barrier at points of entry in particular. And so, uh, yeah, over a lifespan, you'll, you'll potentially acquire more T cells in your skin than you actually have in your blood. Wow. Who would have thought? And then because of these genetic mutations or other reasons you mentioned, that's why the T cells can turn into lymphoma. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, the big partner of lymphoma is leukemia, meaning they can often uh, start to proliferate in the blood as well. And so that is part of CTCL, in particular, along the mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome spectrum, where we will see blood involvement become a big part of that. The Cesare is when we differentiate CTCL from being just um, localized to the skin. And then when it, it starts to involve the blood, um, that's when we start to classify it as Cesare. I just want to clar clarify this for our listeners. Yeah, the, you know, the nomenclature, as you're pointing out, can be a big point of confusion. You know, Cesare has a real historical kind of definition that's stronger than that. It's when your skin is very red 
diffusely. You have a lot of involvement in the blood and you actually have uh, enlarged lymph nodes as part of that. And then mycosis fungoides typically is more patchy on the skin and um, doesn't need to achieve that level of erythroderma or red skin, but it can. And then there can be degrees of blood involvement. So uh, there's a full um, mixture of different types of patients that can be you know, skin only to skin plus blood to Frank Cesare syndrome. So it sounds like there's a lot of overlapping features. What do you typically look for if um, a patient comes in and you have an inkling that this patient likely has CTCL? What kind of clinical presentation are you looking for? So I will tell you this, many patients go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed for, for years. Um, and a lot of this has to do with, um, there's kind of typical presentations and atypical presentations. Typically in early mycosis fungoides, we're looking for patches or flat lesions uh, in the so-called bathing trunk area or sun protected areas. But uh, these can involve the buttocks the inner groin in particular, inner thighs. Um, they can involve under the uh, arms, not really bathing trunk there, but sun protected. So axillae um, across the breasts, very common areas, but anywhere you have skin is game for cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So it's mm -hmm. certainly not an absolute, um, but we do look for some, some certain uh, trends along those lines, particularly in early disease. What is it typically misdiagnosed as? I know that, um, for example, I had a patient came in, she was um, a, a female in her, probably in her 50s or 60s. She had been itching her back for like 20 years. She's like, I just put moisturizer on it all the time. I thought it was just dry skin. I've been told over and over again, it's eczema. We did a biopsy, it turns out she had um, CTCL. And is this like the classic situation where patients are diagnosed with eczema, but they really have CTCL, MF, or do you, are you seeing other diagnosis along the spectrum? Yeah, eczema, forms of atopic dermatitis or allergic contact dermatitis are, are often among the most common misdiagnoses. Um, not to be fair, I gotta say that a lot of times, you know, even when the disease is suspected by the clinician, it doesn't always show clear pathology. Sometimes it takes time to evolve uh, both clinically and histopathologically for an accurate diagnosis. Um, but continued uh, biopsy procedures and sampling to, uh, to look for CTCL as well as for using higher level uh, diagnostics, including molecular uh, studies, which we can talk about. Um, but other diagnoses, boy, you name them, and I've seen them. Uh, psoriasis is very commonly uh, part of a misdiagnosis. Um, for uh, erythroderms, uh, patients who have diffuse red skin, uh, drug allergies, uh, very common uh, misdiagnosis. Um, I just had a patient I saw today who was diagnosed as uh, atopic dermatitis, got dupixent, was diagnosed as uh, uh, psoriasis uh, and, and, and got an anti-psoriatic drug and was diagnosed as uh, having it. And so an allergist because that was ultimately what, it, what they thought it was. And this patient had widespread uh, 
erythema and erythematous papules coalescing into, into larger um, plaques. Um, but finally, someone checked flow cytometry, and that's where the blood sometimes is a much better um, clue to the diagnosis than skin biopsies. Because when you have erythroderma, when you have red, flat, or even just thin uh, lesions, a lot, a lot of times it's not going to show the histopathology that you might expect. Uh, and therefore, blood can be your clue by showing the classic phenotype of abnormal T cells in the blood that goes along with this disease. So I want to talk more about the molecular tests with you. Um, but first, I want to ask you, why is it that pathologists, you know, it seems to be let that I'm not going to blame the pathologist, but the pathology seems to sometimes be ambiguous and difficult to read. Yeah, it's a very important question. Uh, when we talk about CTCL is the, um, is, is the pathology. So first of all, the disease can take time to evolve, as I, as I mentioned. Second of all, the type of biopsy makes a big difference. So for flat lesions, what really needs to be done are broad shaves to give the uh, pathologist enough information where you have a fair amount of epidermis and junctional uh, dermal uh, epidermal junction for, for the dermatopathologist to examine closely because the uh, atypical lymphocytes um, will form tiny little clusters, for example, in the epidermis called potriase microapsises, but they may be few and far between. Uh, areas of what so-called epidermotropism where you have scattered uh, lymphocytes into the epidermis um, may also um, um, be scant and far between. And so broad areas are really important in early disease. For thicker lesions, uh, for evaluation of deeper lesions, then you wanna get into a punch or an excisional biopsy. But by far, I think the biggest mistake is not doing a broad shave biopsy early. The next biggest mistake is only doing one. Really what you wanna do are multiple shave biopsies, multiple sites, um, maybe different morphologies of lesions. If you see something that might look like follicular involvement, then you should do a punch that involves a, a follicular element as well. And I think that um, continued uh, high sensitivity for doing multiple biopsies in the future also needs to happen. The other big mistake I see with this is doing them too close to when a patient's been treating with, treated with high potent topical corticosteroids. This can hinder the full manifestations under the microscope, and, uh, and that can be a problem. Ideally, you want to be off all topical steroids for four or six weeks, at least two weeks. Okay, that's very helpful. So at what point do you say, like, you know, this patient, I'm, I haven't, I think that they have CTCL. I'd like to do a biopsy. They're off steroids. Do you also do the molecular test at that point? And which, what specific um, genetic testing are you doing? Are you doing a TCR, a T-cell receptor clonal test? Um, what specifically are you doing? And are, are you doing that in collaboration uh, with the um, biopsy? So, so no, I don't run those tests immediately. And I'll, and I'll tell you why in a second. But um, I think that I'm focusing on a clinical histologic correlation for the diagnosis. 
And if I need further help, I can send what I've already biopsied to look for molecular evidence of disease. So it can be done from the tissue blocks that are part of the processing after a biopsy anyway. Um, there's basically two levels of molecular testing. There's a PCR test that is, um, just uses PCR to look for T cell receptor clonality. It's kind of a yes or no test, whether they can detect clonality or not. Um, and then there's also a, a, a much more detailed high throughput sequencing of the T cell receptors. Um, this can give you kind of a signature for the clone that can be used uh, to compare one lesion to another lesion much more accurately than a simple PCR test can. And also to look at uh, matching uh, clones in, into the blood or over time, if there might be a question of the diagnosis and now something's returned and it's the same exact clone. So it, it can be a lot more helpful um, to the diagnosis. But I do wanna to return to one another aspect of a question you asked previously, and that is the challenge of diagnosis early. And I went to one aspect of it kind of on the clinician side. I think that there's another aspect to it, and that's on the, um, the, the pathologist side. I think that there may not be pathologists who have a lot of experience reading and distinguishing CTCL. So I think it really is important for both patients and clinicians to know their pathologist, to know um, whether they have had training uh, in particular in reading uh, about cutaneous T-cell lymphoma and understanding the, the finer nuances of what to look for uh, uh, under the microscope. Um, but I also think part of the problem is this is just a challenging disease early. There are very few uh, abnormal cells and sometimes they don't look abnormal. And there's a lot of bystander cells that come along with the, with the clonal abnormal cells that kind of give a little bit of mix to it that can make it mm -hmm. challenging. And then there are patients for one reason or another, probably their genetic predispositions that will show eczema changes or sorry psoriasis changes that um, really confound the, the reading of the, of the specimen. So it, it can be very challenging on many levels. So yeah, you say it, this is a disease that could take time to develop, but what is the benefit of treating CTCL early and the benefit of early intervention and early diagnosis? So I think there's multiple benefits. One of them is um, you can have better directed therapies that are more appropriately treat the disease. So the degree to which it's bothering a patient, symptomatic, pruritic, um, meaning itchy, uh, as well as uh, its appearance, um, scaliness of it, you can make a patient feel a lot more comfortable if you have better treatments for exactly what they have. Another reason is they can get treated sometimes with treatments that'll make CTCL worse. So for example, cyclosporin or um, TNF-alpha inhibitors, which are used for psoriasis or cyclosporin for atopic dermatitis, these suppress the immune system and can actually make CTCL worse. So that's a major reason why you wanna get the diagnosis accurate early as well. Um, and I think fundamentally the principles of cancer still apply to CTCL, even though they can take a while to evolve uh, and can affect patients over decades, uh, more than immediately over you know, a, a matter of months and need rapid chemotherapy immediately. It's not like that. 
But the principles still remain that the less abnormal and cancerous cells you have around, I think the less likely they are to go on and become something worse. That is acquire further mutations, behave more aggressively, be, uh, be more likely to become leukemic, involve the lymph nodes or other organs in the body. So given what you just said, can CTCL be fatal? CTCL can absolutely be fatal. And um, there are advanced forms of it that involve multiple tumors on the skin, very high levels of leukemia. Um, and they can certainly involve organs within the body as well. Um, CTCL also suppresses patients' immune systems. So not from the treatments per se, but from the disease itself. It causes uh, a decrease in the diversity of the repertoire of uh, the T cells. So you have kind of little holes in the immune system. So CTCL patients are more prone to certain bacterial infections, staph bacteremia, septicemia, not that rare with advanced disease. As well, for example, they're much more likely to get um, zoster, shingles, and should uh, be vaccinated very early on in their disease um, with the Shingrex vaccine. It's a, it's a uh, not a live vaccine, so much safer than the older version of it to help protect against that. And then they're at increased risk of developing other lymphomas, other le leukemias and lymphomas, and, and other cancers. And so, you know, for multiple reasons, including the advancement of the disease itself, um, in the advanced forms of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, patients uh, do have risk of dying. Yeah, so a relative of mine, um, he had CTCL, this is many years ago, and there were really no good treatment options at that time, or there wasn't a good understanding of the disease, and he actually died from complications of um, the disease, so he got herpes encephalitis from being immunosuppressed. So I, I totally understand um, what you're talking about and where you're coming from when you say that. Do you feel that CTCL is on the rise? So, you know, the, the epidemiology and, you know, and, and quantifying the incidence of CTCL, it, it's always uh, a question of, are we getting better? When we see some numbers go up, are we getting better at detecting it um, versus not? I could tell you um, it's as prevalent as it's ever been in my career. And, uh, you know, my immediate uh, numbers are certainly uh, uh, high enough, um, but I'm a referral, part of a referral center for CTCL. So it's hard for me to, to gauge that as a, as a um, representative of what's going on uh, globally. But I think that there is better awareness. And I think that um, when we consider all forms of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, not just mycosis fungoides and Cesare syndrome, but there's multiple other types of, uh, of lymphoproliferative uh, disorders, as well as lymphomas of the skin, some not as scary as others, uh, and a fuller understanding of these all these different types that I think um, show that this is a very high incidence uh, among lymphomas collectively. What are the treatment options that are available at this point for CTCL? Um, can you share with us? I know UV light is one of them. Um, can you talk about like, I mean, first we could break this question down. I wanna know what are the treatment options? 
you, if UV light is one of them, are you concerned about the risk of skin cancer from the UV light? Yeah, so, so really, uh, you know, at Yale, we really try to customize a, a treatment regimen based on the uh, stage of the disease, the degree of involvement, where it's involved, and then uh, for each individual patient, uh, you know, what the risk factors might be of a given treatment. And, uh, and, and try to customize that. So um, for patients who have skin-only disease, early disease, you wanna use a skin-directed therapy, like as you mentioned, ultraviolet light therapy and, and really narrow-band ultraviolet uh, B light or narrow-band UVB is uh, extremely effective in particular on uh, fair-skinned individuals. But if that patient has a history of melanoma, a high risk of skin cancer, then we need to weigh that into the equation. Or if the patient has darker skin, then uh, UV light may or may not be uh, the best choice. Um, if it happened to be hypopigmented lesions, then UV becomes a great choice in darker skinned individuals. Uh, another skin-directed therapy we use is topical nitrogen mustard gel. Mm -hmm. I think that this can um, has advantages in that it can be done at home and not require you driving to a phototherapy center to receive your treatment, um, but it only works where it's applied. And some patients develop allergy um, to, to the topical nitrogen mustard. So this needs to be uh, monitored closely and weighed also into the equation. And for the um, more resistant or extreme forms of uh, skin-only involvement, we might progress to something like electric beam therapy. And this is done by a very skilled therapeutic radiologist who and, and specialized center that can really um, apply uh, this uh, really specialized type of radiation so it doesn't go inside the body and really focuses uh, the energy on the, on the skin itself. At what point but do you consider photophoresis? So um, for more resistant disease that um, in particular that's resistant to the skin-directed therapy or uh, for more advanced disease that involves the blood, then we need to use treatments that work um, inside the body uh, as well as uh, combining that with uh, skin-directed therapy. But photophoresis is a, is a blood treatment and in particular it's effective against patients who have blood involvement with uh, CTCL and, and blood involvement is detected by um, a series of tests that fall under the, the term flow cytometry. And um, these are a bunch of uh, markers that are, are used to identify a abnormal patterns of staining on the cells that can really identify and quantify for you how much of the blood is involved with the CTCL. And photophoresis is a treatment that was originally developed by Richard Edelson, who's the uh, current chair of dermatology at Yale. So we're quite familiar with it, but really it's available at um, over a hundred centers across the United States uh, now. And, and one of the uh, major indications is blood involvement with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Do you ever find yourself using retinoids or monoclonal antibodies as treatment options? Yeah. So I quite honestly am not a huge fan of uh, topical um, retinoids, but systemic retinoids such as bixarotene play a huge role in the management of CTCL, very effective uh, agent 
uh, that can affect all stages and um, can affect all compartments. We often combine uh, bexaritine with uh, photophoresis in our patients with uh, extensive disease, in particular with blood involvement. We also like to use um, some immune stimulation uh, in combination with those um, along the lines of interferon alpha or interferon gamma. Okay. And I'm sure you get this question all the time. Is there a cure for CTCL? So um, yes and no. So here's the, here's the way I would phrase it. Um, most of the time we're not able to cure CTCL and most of the time we don't want to try to cure it because to try to cure CTCL, we need to move to uh, the level of um, high dose chemotherapy and stem cell transplantation. And I think there's a risk of death that's not unsubstantial uh, with that level of uh, treatment. Uh, but we do do that in some patients um, with very advanced disease where we've run out of options for. One of the options you mentioned are monoclonal antibodies. And so we, we are acquiring uh, multiple tools now, in particular for patients with blood involvement that involve antibodies that are infused, that bind directly to surface molecules on these cells. One of the more recent ones is mogamalizumab, and uh, that binds to a, a, a molecule called CCR4 that's on a lot of the uh, cancerous CTCL cells in the blood and does a pretty good job of uh, clearing the blood compartment of the abnormal cells. Uh, and there's a couple in development that are looking pretty promising as well. Um, one of them is to a uh, uh, CURE3 DL2 surface molecule. And then there's a bunch of uh, researchers like myself who are really trying to uh, find other potential therapies for CTCL, both on uh, novel targets, as well as trying to really understand the pathways that drive this cancer. So, um, you know, a lot of these high throughput analyses including uh, single cell RNA sequencing and, uh, and, and a whole genome sequencing is enabling uh, investigators to identify uh, the key pathways uh, among CTCL that drives the, their retention and proliferation and a lot of the um, cytokines that they produce and in trying to find alternative uh, treatments. So do you expect in the future, um, in the near future, that there will be some new drugs on the market and new therapeutics to treat CTCL? Absolutely. I know uh, a couple of agents in phase three development right now, and I know uh, about the scientific literature um, um, published and, and, and then scientific work unpublished where uh, a lot of a lot of people, at, um, a lot of places are, are really making inroads into this disease. So I think that's really a really important message uh, for folks who, who are thinking about CTCL, whether they're clinicians or whether they're patients or relatives of patients. And that is that time matters. And so, uh, you know, keeping patients around and alive and, and, and having the opportunity to uh, benefit from scientific discovery, I think is really, um, something that I, I think is inspiring uh, for, for clinicians and patients and, and relatives of, of folks with CTCL to think about and, and maintain hope. That's a very important message. Thank you, Dr. Girardi, for joining us today. I enjoyed our discussion on CTCL, and I'm sure our audience did as well. And if anyone has questions, 
please feel free to reach out to me or Dr. Girardi, and we will be happy to answer them. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Derm Club podcast. If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.